0: On the 8th of March 2014, one of the world's greatest mysteries began to unfold.
1: A mystery that has never been solved.
0: It's the story of a plane that vanished just 38 minutes after takeoff
1: and was never seen again.
0: It is a story that tells us about the incredible power of technology
1: and what happens when critical information is unknown.
0: It is a story that tells us how important it is to have good quality data.
1: Because you never know when we might need it.
2: This event was a catalyst for the most difficult ocean search operation ever undertaken, and what we found transformed our understanding of the seabed forever.
0: Welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Alex Conacher.
1: And I'm Bernadette Ballantyne. And in this episode, We've partnered with Fugro to find out why data about the ocean floor became the focus of the attention of the entire world in 2014.
0: And why today there is a huge, global effort underway, not only to map the sea floor, but to derive as much data as possible about the world's oceans.
1: An effort that's only possible because of stratospheric leaps forward in technology.
0: And global cooperation?
1: Our story begins in Malaysia,
0: with a Boeing 777 passenger jet owned by Malaysian Airways carrying 239 people.
1: MH370 left Kuala Lumpur International Airport in the south of Malaysia at 12.41am on the 8th of March, on course to Beijing in China.
0: A journey that should take less than six hours.
1: But after 38 minutes, as the plane flew over the South China Sea, it stopped reporting to Malaysian air traffic control To this day, no one knows why.
0: Military radar tracked it for another hour. The plane had diverted from its planned route north to Beijing, taking a U-turn. Instead, it flew westwards back over Malaysia and the Andaman Sea.
1: All efforts to communicate with the plane were ignored. And at 5.30am, search and rescue efforts began in its last known location, which was initially understood to be in the Gulf of Thailand
0: until analysis of military radar signals placed the plane somewhere above the Andaman Sea, north of Indonesia.
1: But then even more data emerged. British satellite company Inmarsat reported picking up routine signals from the plane until 08.19 local time.
2: The biggest challenge there was really not knowing exactly where the plane went down.
0: This is David Miller, a geomatics engineer and Fugro's director for government accounts in the Americas region. He has been mapping oceans for over 30 years, and although he didn't realize it at the time, the search for MH370 would become the largest ever operation of its kind. The search meant bringing in over 100 of Fugro's ocean surveying experts, and three survey vessels utilizing hull-mounted echo sounders that allowed exploration of the seafloor. The operation generated transformative data critical to future ocean science.
1: The satellite data gave investigators a sweeping arc across the Indian Ocean that could theoretically have been the final resting place of MH370.
0: This arc fell into an area which was the responsibility of Australian search and rescue. Just as there was uncertainty about the exact location of the plane, no one knew exactly what the ocean bed in this area looked like, because in 2014 only 5% of the world's seabeds had been directly measured and mapped.
1: Despite oceans covering 70% of the Earth's surface, we only knew what a tiny fraction of this looked like. And the data that search teams had on the area was calculated from low-resolution satellite measurements, making it just an estimate, and it wasn't always correct.
2: We saw vertical errors in the satellite derived bathymetry from, from satellite altimetry that were plus or minus 1800 meters. So, you know, that, that's almost um, 30% of error uh, in, in the measurement. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Before a detailed search for MH370 could begin, early surveys of the enormous 278,000 kilometer squared search area had to be conducted. Data for this is linked to in our show notes.
2: First, we had to map from the ocean surface because the resolution and accuracy of the existing bathymetry in that part of the ocean was inadequate to support a high-resolution seafloor surge. Our technology can detect debris as small as the size of a chair, but we can't fly our high-resolution tools above the seafloor if we don't know where that is.
1: Collecting general bathymetric data, which is the bed depth of the ocean floor, is done using sonar.
2: And we're basically measuring the time of travel of sound from a source back to a receiver.
0: So a ship sends out a sound.
2: Uh, the sound bounces off the seafloor, uh, returns to the source, and a depth can be derived. And, and that's what we're, we're doing. In the past, ships would send one pulse at a time from a pathometer. But now we have multi-beam echo sounders that can give up to 300 responses at the same time, meaning that in 1,000 meters of water, we can cover a swath of three kilometers in each pass. So in the case of MH370, our search went as deep as 5,000 metres, meaning that our swath was up to 15 kilometres wide.
1: The new data from this first survey produced maps of 15 times higher resolution than had ever been created in the area before, giving new geological insights about the 40-million-year-old seafloor. But more urgently, it enabled Phase 2, the detailed seafloor search to begin using deep-tow sonar vehicles and autonomous underwater vehicles operating close to the seabed. These vehicles were equipped with multi-beam echo sounders, side-scan sonars, sub-bottom profilers, cameras, and other sensors to find the aircraft and map the debris field.
2: And the challenge. The challenge, of course, is characteristics in the signature of certain types of seafloor could could match debris, right? So we would do this mapping and then determine from the mapping where there were potential debris fields. And then we would have to do some very high resolution exploration at that site to determine whether it was a natural feature uh, or something not natural like debris from an aircraft, right?
0: Sadly, despite months of searching, aircraft MH370 was never found. But the result is that the Australian government, and in fact the whole world, has 730,000 square kilometres of new bathymetry data and 120,000 square kilometres of detailed seafloor data that it had never had before.
2: It is now one of the most thoroughly mapped areas of the deep ocean in the world. We discovered vast undersea mountains, underwater sediment landslides, and highly complex series of volcanoes, ridges, and valleys. And we even found a couple of shipwrecks, which were not expected.
1: Importantly, this data is now being used by the ocean community to model oceanography, habitats, climate events, and even tsunamis.
0: But had it existed already, search efforts would have been accelerated.
2: But the reality is if this type of data if set existed back when that accident happened, then he sent, you know, essentially on day one, then the precise high-resolution search on the seafloor could have begun. And instead, it took five or six months of reconnaissance to, to, uh, to facilitate that.
1: Fortunately, searching for lost planes is highly unusual, but there are many other reasons why having accurate seabed data is really important.
3: Well, the ocean covers 70% of our planet, but based on Going back to where we started in in 2017, the fact that we'd only mapped 5% of that ocean, yet the oceans are fundamental to a whole range of ocean processes.
0: This is Jamie McMichael Phillips, director of the Nippon Foundation Jebco Seabed 2030 project, being run by Japan's Nippon Foundation with Jebco, which is the group behind the general bathymetric chart of the ocean. Their Seabed 2030 project was launched in 2016 and is seeking to map 100% of the ocean floor by 2030.
3: So ocean current circulation, uh, the the prediction of that, the tracking of current circulation depends on the shape of the seabed. And that current circulation drives weather patterns, it drives climate change. The shape of the seabed is fundamental to, to the path and strength of tsunamis and how those are modeled, how those are predicted. The shape of the seabed is fundamental to safety of navigation, to to the, the the monitoring of of a whole range of activities in terms of of ecosystems, managing those ecosystems, and a whole whole host of other geological processes. They're actually fundamental to the way we go about our everyday business, but people just don't realise that. There, there has been for a number of years, an element of sea blindness. We're surrounded by the ocean, but but we we have been guilty as, as a world of, of, of taking it for granted.
1: But all of this is set to change. This year, 2021, marks the start of the United Nations Decade of Ocean Science for Sustainable Development, a decade which is all about transforming and enhancing our understanding of the world's oceans.
0: We're going to find out exactly what that means later by talking to the organisation in charge of this, the Intergovernmental Oceanographic Commission of UNESCO. But data from Seabed 2030 will play a crucial role.
3: So Jebco's history goes back to 1903.
0: Created in fact by Prince Albert of Monaco, who brought together experts from all over the world to begin mapping the oceans.
3: And in those days, it it was compiling onto paper charts, it was it was a regional compilation that was put together as an atlas, so a bit like the road atlas you might have in your car, an atlas of maps.
1: Prince Albert's group consisted of volunteers interested in ocean science.
3: But it's been the, the compilation of mapping has been done largely on a voluntary basis. Some voluntary funding, some government funding, some academic funding. But the Seabed 2030 project was designed to pull all that together and to accelerate. So whilst 5% sounds insignificant, it is absolutely not. It's, it's a huge part of the ocean that has been pulled together using a range of technologies since 1903.
0: Back in 1903, there were no multi-beam echo sounders.
3: If you wind wind back to, to the early days of ocean mapping, you know, it was done by by a lead line, so a simple weight on the end of a very long piece of rope that people put over the side of a ship and plumbed the depths, literally plumbed the depths, and and you were getting one depth in one position.
0: Hence the meaning of this well-known expression for hitting a low point.
3: Depending on the depth of water, that would take, take a, a fair bit of time to achieve. We then moved on with the introduction of sonar, so, so the the use of, of sound waves to map the seabed, sending the, 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 the sonar ping out, measuring the two-way distance, applying a, a little bit of, of, of mathematics for the speed of sound in water, and you can determine the depth. We then had the advent of multi-beam sonars, where instead of one Ping, you've got a multitude of pings across a wide swathe, so a big searchlight that can hoover up vast tracts of the ocean. But even so, there is still many, many thousands of kilometres of ocean still to map.
0: In fact, Jamie calculates that it would take a single ship using a multi beam echo sounder 200 years to map the oceans.
3: And we estimate today that, that based on current technologies, multi-beam technologies, there's about 200 ship years of data still to gather.
0: Fortunately, we don't need to rely on a single ship. In fact, the global shipping fleet has massively expanded in the last couple of decades. This is David Miller again.
2: You know, if you look at the global capability through private industry, through academia, academic research vessels, through governments, there was suddenly actually quite a large global fleet of vessels that were capable of mapping the world's oceans. And, you know, even 10, 20 years ago, there was considerably fewer, fewer vessels.
1: This means there's also a lot more data. In fact, some areas of our oceans have been mapped. It's just not many people know about it.
3: When Seabed 2030 started up, the, the idea was to do, to do a number of things. Firstly, to reach out across all networks to access data that had already been gathered, that was sitting on people's servers, sitting in people's filing cabinets, but had not been assembled into the Jebco grid. And at the same time, going out and encouraging that network of of ocean mappers to gather new data.
0: This is where Fugro came in. David Miller was attending the Jebco Global Forum when the initiative was launched, and he knew that his company was collecting exactly this sort of data for clients all over the world. He knew that automation and remote operations were making it easier to collect data than it had ever been before, and he felt, deep down, that it was the right thing to do.
2: And there were really two areas, I think, that we recognised that we could contribute. One was in helping free up some data that existed within the private sector that could be contributed to this cause. Uh, Because part of the CBED 2030 project was actually uh, to, to recognize the need and to inform and educate around the opportunity to participate through just the contribution of data that may have been already collected but wasn't necessarily shared or in the public domain. So for Fugro that, that really works uh, every day in, in mapping the world's oceans for our clients, You know, be they public sector clients or be they private sector clients, we are constantly mapping the ocean and coasts. So there's a lot of data that we knew was, was being collected but wasn't necessarily in the public domain and part of this project.
1: So the first step was talking to clients to see if they were willing to share this information with the project, which a large number were. The second area was actually taking new measurements of unmapped seabed areas using vessels and equipment that was already out at sea and moving between projects or back to shore from carrying out work for clients.
2: So we we saw an opportunity to essentially keep our equipment running between projects as we were moving ships around from project to project and from continent to condom, uh, thereby collecting data and uh, making those data available to to Ciba 2030 and, and, and
4: JEPCO. They are in between project, they could simply relax, but no, they are willing to collect as much good data as possible.
0: Marco Filipponi is a former Italian naval officer who became an expert in collecting hydrographic data and has a PhD in systems engineering. There is nothing he doesn't know about gathering data, processing it and sharing it. He, along with teams of surveyors and other marine experts, spend weeks and months at sea gathering data for clients, and even when a project is complete, they're happy to keep the sonar running.
1: He explains that bathymetry data for seabed 2030 is measured using multi-beam echo sounders and then processed into point clouds which can then be used to generate a surface profile.
0: One of Marco's fondest achievements was the collection of a huge amount of seabed data for the Norwegian government which was one of the first large-scale contributors to the seabed 2030.
4: We collected for the Norwegian Hydrographic Service, and in particular for a programme that is called Mariano.
0: Mariano, and we will link to that in the show notes.
4: We collect more than 100,000 square kilometer and ancillary data in the last 11-12 years.
1: Norway was collecting data on bathymetry, sediment composition, biodiversity, habitats and biotopes, and pollution in the seabed in Norwegian waters. It was one of the first countries to share its data with Seabed 2030.
4: Norway was was one of the first, from my, let's say, uh, memory, that really understood the need to collect the data for a wider community. Because Mariano Programme is not only focused on bathymetry, it's focused in a different wider application for any uh, marine environment and uh, information you can gather from the marine environment. What we are doing in particular for them is collecting bathymetry and uh, sub bottom profile or seismic data that are collected conventionally with a team on board. But in between survey areas, we are also collecting data, during transit. And as you can imagine, transiting from a Norwegian port to the Barents Sea, to the Arctic Ocean, is very long transit. So every time you do that, you collect huge amount of data. Those data are collected using the same workflow we do for CBE 2030. And uh, we can do that with the, 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 the people are on board or directly remote controlling the vessel.
0: This is an important point because automation and remote operations are making it easier and more cost-effective to gather marine data. Even so, it was not always an easy operation.
4: Norway is one of the most challenging areas to gather data, uh, hydrographic data, because of, uh, starting from the easy, because of the ice, <laughs> and uh, in particular Barents Sea and the Arctic Ocean. So in this particular, Condition you must have a very detailed and adequate planning to make sure that in the given time window you have available, that usually every year is somewhere between May and the beginning of October, end of October, you are able to transit the vessel in the, in the area and you are able to collect the data in the most efficient way because you have to live with a very uh, rough and extreme weather condition that are making the, the, the survey planning very difficult if not planned properly just to, for, for a, a quick and exa- quick example so if we are there and there are still ice in the in the survey area then we have to divert the vessel line and come back so you have you are wasting time doing data collection and also you are not making the, the, the data set collection easy to process from the processing point of view. Because if you go there with a vessel that is not very, let's say, weather capable, the system you deploy is not the most, is not the most efficient, then the time you have to stay in the area to complete the data collection is longer. And then you are more exposed to weather condition. That is one of the, the biggest challenges.
1: But this is just above the surface. There's a range of other challenges below the waterline where rapidly changing temperatures could mean that the sound velocities need to be corrected as they slow in cold waters.
0: Communication and navigation can also be difficult in some of the world's most remote places.
4: One of the, the, the challenges uh, is that more you go north, less communication or less bandwidth you have available. That is one of the main issue that is not only leading to poor communication, but is also leading to uh, issue to uh, gather satellite positioning. So, as I said before, Fugro is investing a lot into evaluating all possible technology. In recently, we have uh, tested communication systems that are able to work consistent, even in the uh, polar region that also provide a, a very good uh, bandwidth that provide us capability to transfer the data. So all these exercise we are doing during real project, that all comes together, building our knowledge into e- apply those technical skills into CBER 2030. That means when cb 2030, some stage will move into unexplored region that will be most likely higher uh, latitude, then we are ready to tackle that challenge with autonomous vessel and communication system that we prove to be reliable, as well with workflow that are able to take control of the system, QC the data, and streamline part of the data set back to the shore for somebody to QC and say, those data are good, carry on.
0: Creating a digital atlas of the world's oceans is important for all the reasons that Jamie explained, from understanding ocean circulation to tsunami prediction and preserving precious ecosystems.
1: But there's much more that we don't know about ocean science, and the Intergovernmental Oceanographic Commission is determined to bring about enlightenment.
5: I think we, we are now more used to live in the state of crisis. We all know what it is. And the crisis that we are living in now is apparent. But there is now a crisis in the ocean that is much less apparent to people. But it is clear to scientists.
1: This is Vladimir Ryabinin, CEO of the IOC, also known as the home of ocean science within the United Nations. Five years ago, the UN published the world's first ever ocean assessment, and the findings were frightening.
5: This report states that the humankind is now running out of time to start managing the ocean sustainably. And that is the most alarming notice that you can get, because previously we thought that the ocean was so vast, so invincible, that this is just impossible.
0: Sadly, we were wrong. And there are lots of what Vladimir calls stressors acting on the ocean.
5: First of all, we shouldn't forget about uh, the, the warmer waters. That is, of course, uh, very, very clear because of the global warming. And this uh, warming uh, penetrates to quite deep uh, layers of the ocean. Then the ocean also absorbs carbon. And this leads uh, through several processes, uh, quite actually easy to understand, chemical reactions to more acidic or less alkaline waters rather. Uh, then uh, because there are at least seven factors that reduce the content of the dissolved oxygen in the ocean and production of of the ocean by uh, of the excuse me or uh, oxygen by phytoplankton and uh, of course which we, we cannot forget about uh, the, the pollution that is uh, abundant people know about plastic pollution but they don't know about some other types of pollution that that uh, uh, that is probably even more devastating for, for the health of the ocean because it's acting not mechanistically but, you know, kind of, you know, on the level of, uh, of uh, functioning of organisms. So, so, and each of these factors that I mentioned is an additional stress. So uh, this uh, uh, the easiest uh, uh, illustration would be that if you're attacked by several hooligans and they're hitting you from different angles. That's what is happening with the ocean. And we are the hooligans.
1: It's not too late for us to improve ocean health, but we don't have long.
5: Now the situation is critical. And uh, in 2016, the whole world understood, through the World Ocean Assessment and the voice of the United Nations, that the situation is really critical and uh, now we are trying to engage science to basically turn the tide. Uh, that's the point of, of, of that activity.
0: The activity is a 10-year initiative called the UN Decade of Ocean Science for Sustainable Development.
6: Yeah, so the UN Decade of, of Ocean Science is is a UN-wide initiative that is really trying to create a revolution in the way we generate knowledge about the ocean and the way that we use that knowledge.
0: Alison Clausen is a programme specialist who works with Vladimir at the IOC.
6: So the ocean is central to everything that happens on Earth. It's central to human well-being. it's central to the economy, it's essential to biodiversity, to the climate. And what the UN Decade of Ocean Science is trying to do is make sure that we have the right knowledge about the ocean so that the ocean can really contribute in a positive way to human wellbeing and to the, to the conservation of life on Earth.
1: It means creating a global movement that brings in nations, organisations, the public sector, charities, private companies and the general public to set up the reporting infrastructure that oceans need if we're to manage them sustainably.
6: So to, to, to make sure that things are structured and coordinated and that really we can have this collective impact and have a you know a shared effort to achieve the ambition of the decade, we've developed an implementation plan. And this is really a framework document. It's a it's a strategic document. It aims to be non-prescriptive, but it aims to set out some broad priorities for the next 10 years in terms of what are the key things that people need to work together to to learn about the ocean and what are the key ways in which we need to use that knowledge.
0: The plan was accepted by the UN just a few weeks ago in January, and it sets out a roadmap for turning the tide, starting from a vision of the science we need for the ocean we want. And we will link to it in the show notes.
6: The implementation plan also then sets out the the, the mission of The Decade, which is about transformative ocean science for sustainable development solutions that connect people in our ocean. Because The Decade is really about transformation. It's about transforming the way that we're generating and using ocean knowledge and linking that to sustainable development solutions. And then it moves into what we call the, the, the Decade Action Framework, and this is where we try to set out a roadmap or a, I guess, a guidance on, on what is going to happen over the next 10 years. So the implementation plan does not give, does not aim to give details about the specific projects and the specific initiatives and who's going to do what and where. It really comes at it from a, from a much more strategic point of view.
1: Instead, it sets out a series of seven outcomes.
6: What are the seven? major characteristics of the ocean we want by the end of the the decade and it it, it runs through runs through those seven outcomes they're things like a we want a clean ocean we want a safe ocean a healthy ocean a productive ocean an accessible ocean um, an inspiring and engaging ocean and a predicted ocean so that's really the ocean we want in 2030.
0: the plan also explains the challenges facing the world's ocean stewards in getting the ocean that we want And not surprisingly, as the plan involved thousands of stakeholders and three years of discussion, there are plenty. But the plan has narrowed it down to ten different categories, from knowledge, for example, knowing more about pollution and how to remediate it, to protecting and restoring ecosystems, and creating a sustainable ocean economy.
6: We then have a group which is about some of the essential infrastructure that is needed to achieve the, the vision of the decade. So this is about a global ocean observations system. Um, it's also about early warning systems and community resilience. So putting place in, in, in place mechanisms, infrastructure systems for increased community resilience. And it's also um, also about data and, uh, and creating a full digital representation of the ocean that is accessible and shared and open to anybody, regardless of who they are, where they live, and in, in terms of the technology they have.
1: Vladimir compares the need for ocean monitoring systems to the mandatory reporting of weather-related information and says we need the same for ocean condition data.
5: The United Nations uh, agreed to establish the World Meteorological Organization and there is a special convention on this World Meteorological Organization that makes meteorological observations basically mandatory. And uh, this uh, brought to the world a significant increase in the quality and reliability and availability of meteorological predictions.
1: He says the same paradigm shift that happened over 50 years ago for weather data is now needed for ocean reporting.
5: The ocean science historically has been based on curiosity, the sense of discovery. But I already spoke that this science needs now to, to offer solutions. And because of that, we need to also change the foundation for ocean science because it has to be really mandatory to conduct the ocean science.
0: And if we have this... As the UN decade of ocean science intends, then the solutions for improving ocean health will become clear.
5: We need to understand pollution and try to get rid of the pollution. This will help us to sustain the ocean health. For that, we need to know how oceans' ecosystems function. And, uh, for example, 90% of the species remain unknown. So we don't know what we are dealing with in terms of ocean ecosystems. So we need uh, really a change there. If we have ocean healthy, then we will be able to feed people through fisheries and aquaculture sustainably. So this is one of the uses of the ocean but of course there are many other uses like renewable energy, like transportation and many other other uses. So this brings us to the domain of a sustainable ocean economy that can grow faster than the terrestrial counterpart.
1: And of course all of this is happening under the ominous threat of climate change.
5: So this means that uh, we need to also address uh, uh, increased uh, strengths of tropical cyclones, tropical storms, uh, other storms and other manifestations of climate change on the ocean. And this requires observations. This requires a change in the in dealing with ocean data. That is, uh, the, I think, the center point of all the decade and uh, we also analyzed the capacity of ocean science in different countries. It is hugely different, so we need uh, to have everyone on board, leaving no one behind, as we, as we stated. And also what is important, with that new understanding of the role of the ocean, the situation there, we need to somehow instigate behavior change of people in their relation with the ocean. We would like to have these relations more uh, harmonic, And this requires also some psychological, uh, sociological studies. So that is basically the scope of the decade.
0: What is clear is that the decade will require a huge amount of work if it's to succeed, and that every organisation that uses the oceans can contribute, from local fishermen with unique understanding of the island communities where they live, to national oceanographic institutes.
6: If people do want to get involved, the best thing to do is to get onto our website, Follow our social media and find out where the National Decade Committees already exist. Join one of those if you're interested, or if there isn't one in your country, then start talking to partners about establishing one.
1: By sharing data from its surveys for global organisations and carrying out additional mapping in between projects, Fugro has contributed over a million square kilometres of ocean mapping to the Seabed 2030 project, which has made incredible progress since it began four years ago.
3: The one that that, that is most memorable uh, is, is a small project we ran using SeaKit, which is an autonomous surface vehicle. Um, which was already doing work that was being sponsored by the European Space Agency to prove the control of the vessel over the horizon.
1: SeaKit and Fugro together developed this 12 metre long remote controlled uncrewed surface vessel called Blue Essence, which is exactly the kind of remote and autonomous technology that Marco and David have talked about.
3: They very kindly allowed us to use their sonar system and in an ideal world we would have placed our operators, our sonar operators, at the control centre which was based in the UK. But of course Covid got in the way as it is done for, for many many people.
0: Instead the Jebco Nippon Foundation used remote working to empower its alumni network around the world. We brought
3: uh, 11 of those individuals together virtually and we gave them the tools to operate from their own homes and their own offices to plan the sonar mission to be able to switch on the sonar system and operate it and monitor it remotely gather data remotely and process it remotely
1: it's initiatives like this and many many others that have had a dramatic impact on our understanding of the seabed
3: so we've gone from five percent and we've pushed up the, the, the area of ocean mapped to 19%.
0: To put that into context, we have now mapped 69 million square kilometres of ocean surface, which is more than the combined total of Africa, North America and Europe. But there is still a lot of work to do to map the entire seabed by 2030 and support the ambitions of the decade of ocean science.
3: But that still leaves us 293 million square kilometres to go. So so we, we've still got to mobilise all these communities that have an interest in ocean mapping, all those sonar systems and multi-beam systems that I described, and bring them together and get out there and gather new data.
1: The good news is that technology is available to gather the science we need for the oceans we want. The challenge now is mobilising the world to collect, analyse and maintain it. Engineering Matters is a production of Reby Media. Thank you to our episode partner, Fugro, the Intergovernmental Oceanographic Commission and Seabed 2030. This episode was written and produced by me, Bernadette Ballantyne, edited and narrated by Alex Conacher, sound engineering by Ross McPherson and series supervision by John Young. Our executive ocean mapper is Rory Harris. Engineering Matters is available on all podcast apps and you can go to our website to sign up for a newsletter and get the latest episode links sent straight to your email.